You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. If you haven't gotten the uh, memo already, we're in a, uh, a little three-part series, mini-series within our study on 1 Corinthians that we're just calling Sex, Marriage, and Singleness. Again, Sex, Marriage, and uh, Singleness. Uh, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, I'm Ant Pastor here at Midtown Tunoch. Very glad that you are here uh, worshiping with us today. We're, we're just grateful for your, for your presence uh, that you will come join us uh, this morning. I want to go ahead and give you a heads up when I talk about sex uh, from the pulpit. I generally say I'm PG-13. All right, I'm not rated R, I'm not TVMA, we're not doing anything graphic, but we got to be able to talk about it. We PG-13, hope that'll be okay uh, with you today. I think when it comes to sexuality uh, within, uh, or I should say our world's perspective on how the church perceives sexuality, talks about sexuality, handles the issue of sexuality, I think the church oftentimes is seen as behind the times, right? Like, come on, it's 2018, like you, you still have this regressive mindset, you're so close-minded, you're stuck in the past, you're overly restrictive. The church oftentimes is seen as a group that shames people for their sexuality. I listened to a sermon, uh, this was probably three or four weeks ago as I was just starting to prepare uh, this sermon, and for the same passage that we were in today, uh, and the brother who was preaching, as he got to his kind of climax of the sermon when he was talking about why we should turn away from sexual sin, he, he brought up the point that he said, well, if everyone had monogamous relationships with their spouses, then we would never have any sexually transmitted diseases. And that was his primary point. And so what's happened is the church is primarily, when we talk about sex, it's always what we should not do and how it's wrong and what are some of the negative physical consequences of uh, when sex is not used properly. But generally speaking, actually most of the, I would say at least half of the verses in the Bible that talk about sex, talk about it also in terms of what it is supposed to be, what it is for, and how God actually designed it. We'll get into it more in a bit. Sex was created by God to celebrate, to cultivate, and to communicate oneness and love and unity between two men and female who are in the context of marriage. It is a very beautiful thing. If you ever uh, work through the book of Song of Solomon, there, there is much talk about sex in it in a way that is very uniting for their relationship. I often liken sex to fire, right? Fire in and of itself it has a level of power to it, right? It's a powerful thing. In and of itself, it's not good or bad, right? If used in the proper boundaries, the proper restrictions, it can bring warmth and heat to a home. It can help sustain life. Fire outside of the proper restrictions and boundaries can cause death. It can cause massive amounts of pain. It all depends on how you use it. It all depends on whether or not you use it within the boundaries that it is supposed to be used in. I would say sex is the same way. Which means as a church, we need to be able to talk intelligently about the beauty and benefits of God's creation of sex and the boundaries and restrictions that God puts around sex. This week here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul confronts the Corinthians on, on their, their, their what he calls sexual immorality or their, their, the way that they sin sexually. I believe things like an overemphasis on uh, Things like pregnancy outside of wedlock or sexually transmitted disease that often come from the pulpit, which actually is never brought up in the case against um, sinning sexually in the Bible. But when we do that, then we underemphasize God's proper design for sex. I think that's part of the reason people have this view of the church where it's like we talk about sex like it's dirty. 
We talk about sex only in terms of like, 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 like it's just a wrong thing, like it's something that, that shouldn't be desired or shouldn't really be talked about or thought about in that way. We're just a bunch of archaic, archaic uh, thought processes and these restrictive rules that we don't really explain fully to others. And at the same time, on top of that, like I, I feel like then this is even worse. We know so many church leaders, pastors, elders, uh, bishops, or whatever in the church that are known for adultery, known for sexual sin. And so we have, this, we have so many problems in the way that we as a church are representing God or being ambassadors for Christ in regards to the issue of sexual immorality. Some churches and some church leaders even cover up sexual abuse within the church to save their own name or to save face, so to speak. In many ways, we do a horrible job. We take this, this, this beautiful uh, creation uh, by God of sex, and we, we, we use it to, to harm others, we use it to take, we use it to, to solely fulfill our own desires without even acknowledging God and his plan. It's extremely harmful. I just got to say it. Anytime sexual abuse happens within the church, it has to be reported, right? So often, it, just, it doesn't get reported. I don't, I don't understand. I don't want to spend too much time on that today. That's not what Paul is, is dealing with in the passage, but I do want to say that our church is, the, I shouldn't say our church, the, the church in general in our country has committed so much harm, has done so much harm, and so many have suffered in silence as we do not handle this well. The, the sexual sin and even abuse that we see in the church shows that in, in, in many times churches function around the idea of, of, of sexuality the same way that the world does, whether or not we're preaching it and talking about it from the pulpit. We have to be distinct. One of the primary problems, I hope you've noticed this with, with the church at Corinth, is that they're a church that's in Corinth, but they, they had too much Corinth in the church, if you know what I mean. They, they had too much of the world that infiltrated the church and was, and was determining for them how they are to live, how they're going to act, how they're going to behave, and Paul's going to rightly call them out for that. He's going to rightly call them out of that as well. As a church, we use the Word of God as our, as our roadmap as our compass. We sang about him being a good, good father. We can trust him. If he gives us rules and boundaries, we should know it is for our good because he is a good father. First Corinthians chapter six, let's start at verse 12. Uh, also, one of the things you'll notice in the book of First Corinthians is a lot of times certain things will be in quotes. What's going on when you see that is Paul is quoting them oftentimes on things that they have said. He addresses that specific quote and shows them how the gospel leads them uh, to live or to act in response to uh, likely what they have written to him. So starting at verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. It's believed that this is a phrase that Christians and Corinthians in general would use to justify them doing whatever it is that they wanted to do. They say all things are lawful for me. Kind of like if you talk to somebody about something they do wrong, and they're like, yeah, 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 but Jesus will forgive me. They use it like that, right? It's a way to justify what they are doing wrong so they don't have to feel bad about the thing that they're doing wrong. Paul quotes that as if to say, okay, even if something is lawful and you are allowed to do it, even if that is the case, he says, that doesn't mean that it's helpful. That doesn't mean that it is good for you. Paul is saying, and, and hear me, this is a loving thing for Paul to do because Paul could just come in and just say, God told you not to do it, so stop. He could have done that, right? For me, as a, as a, as a father, as a parent now with, with my children, I don't want to just tell them what not to do. I'm going to show them, and that's a loving, patient work and a patient thing to do to say, hey, this is actually bad for you. Let me help you see why. So we see Paul beginning to do that right here. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. 
All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Some translations, I will not be mastered by anything. Some translations say, I will not be brought under the power of anything. Paul's like, it's, it's, it's not just that some things aren't helpful, he's pointing out, but some things also will control you. Some things also will, will, will master you. I love this quote. It says, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin is very enticing, right? It always looks good on the front. It always looks like it's going to make you feel good. It makes all these promises to us. And in the end, it always costs us more than it gives us. This is the way that sin works. This is why I would oftentimes start it out as a seemingly harmless, seemingly harmless from a worldly point of view. Desire to look at pornography turns into this uncontrollable addiction to porn. This is why for many, a friendly lunch with a co-worker turns into an affair that's now destroying a marriage. Because sin doesn't just have a desire to be a part of your life. Sin tries to take over and master you. We've seen this happen with sexual immorality. Sexual desires have this tendency to, to control us when we submit to them. What is disguised as freedom? What is disguised as, I need to get rid of all these restrictions. And then you, you move towards and walk in sexual immorality and you find out that you're actually now in prison. That you're actually now chained. That you're actually now being mastered because now you're unable to stop doing the thing that you know you shouldn't do. And in many ways you don't want to do. Somewhere... Oftentimes it goes from I'm choosing to do this thing that I think it's okay to I actually can't stop. I actually can't say no to it. And then now it moves from there to now I'm going to justify what it is that I'm doing is the next step. Oh, this looks fun to, oh, my goodness, I can't stop. Well, now I got to justify it because I don't want to feel that bad about what I am doing. And so you might say a phrase like all things are lawful to me. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know, but God will forgive me. Paul goes on to hit another saying that people in Corinth would use to try to justify their uh, sexual practices. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and another. So the, the, the ESV in verse uh, 13 in that first part, it cuts off the quotation at food. It says food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, end quote. The NIV, well, actually, if you know about Greek, they don't actually use quotations. Uh, in, in the NIV actually takes those quotes out further, which I actually think is the right uh, interpretation. Let me read it again. This is Paul quoting the Corinthians in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. So basically, they're, they're saying to him, food is meant for the stomach. This is just an appetite. The stomach is meant for food. Ultimately, the food that we eat is going to go away. The body that we eat when we die is going to go away. Why are you making such a big deal out of this, Paul? This is really not that big of a deal. This, 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 this sexual desire that we have is just like a desire that we have for food. It's just an appetite, right? You have an appetite for food, so you eat food. It's not that big of a deal, Paul. Why are you making this? It's not that deep. God gave me these needs, right? He knows my heart. He knows my needs. These desires are natural. If my body was created with these desires and these appetites, then it must be okay for me to indulge in them. It's the reasoning that they are pushing towards, Paul. It's just physical, Paul. It's not that deep. We have these urges, these needs. Continue on in verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. 
The term sexual immorality there, just so you know, is a term that refers to any type of uh, sexual activity or practice that is not within the proper restraints that God set up between man and woman in the context of marriage. Paul states that the body is for the Lord, and he points out that, that Jesus was raised from the dead. He was raised up by the power of God, a resurrection that included his physical body, right? This is the point that Paul was making, the resurrection that included his physical body. If you know the story, Thomas was doubting. He's like, I got to touch him. I got to put my hand in his hand. And Thomas touched his body. It's a physical body that was resurrected is a point that's being made. And Paul says, and we also are going to be resurrected. A resurrection also includes our bodies. See, they had this very low view of their bodies, Especially at that time. We, we have it somewhat here, but not, not as bad as they did at that time. They, they esteemed the body very lowly. The things that you can see, material things that you can touch, they esteemed those very lowly. It's not what was important is what's on the inside, right? Our, our spirit, that, that's what's important. That's what's going to live on after we die. They didn't have the perspective on their bodies as God did, like God did. Their views of their bodies weren't aligned with his, and we honestly have the same problem. They make a point, like it's just an appetite that our, that our body has when referring to sex. And Paul counters that argument by saying, first, your body isn't meant for sexuality before the Lord. Your body has a purpose. He's pointing out your body is not some less important part of your being as compared to your spirit and your soul. Right? Like your, your body is not some, some secondary part of your existence where, where the true you is on the inside. Second, this body that you're talking about, it is so important that when we're fully and finally redeemed, that when we go on to be resurrected, to go on and be with the Lord, our bodies will be there. We will have resurrected bodies. He's saying that Christ is saying our redemption, our, our, our salvation is not fully complete if our spirits and our souls are redeemed and our bodies are not because our bodies are that important to God. That, that you can't be fully redeemed and not have your body redeemed. You can't be fully resurrected and brought from death to life unless your body is resurrected and brought from death to life. It's the point that he's making. He's saying you are sleeping on the importance and value of your body, your physical material body to God. It is not a, it's not a secondary, second-rate part of your existence as compared to your spirit and your mind and your soul. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Your body is extremely important, and it's for the Lord. And it is for the Lord. He created it for his glory, just like he created everything else in existence for his glory. He's saying it belongs to him. It's going to be raised up by his power, just like Jesus was raised up. Paul is saying our bodies are important. They're physical, but they're not just physical. This is why we have this growing uh, hatred in our culture, which is appropriate for uh, what we often call body shaming. Right? We sense this. We sense that, that, that this is actually deeper than just physical, that it actually affects us on a spiritual level, on a mental level. For example... If I said your shoes were ugly, you might be like, what are you, that's stupid. What are we, in third grade? Like, what are, we, what, what are we even doing? If somebody says that you're ugly, that's a different type of statement, right? Because your body is not clothing that your soul wears. Your body is a part of who you are. And so when people talk about your body, you sense it that they are actually talking about a part of who you are, not just clothes that you wear. Paul's making the point that your body is very, very important. Somebody says something bad about your clothes, it's, it's irritating. Somebody says something about your body, and it's an insult directly to you. You sense that. You feel that. It can affect our sense of self. Why? Because our body is a part of us. You begin to believe the things that people say about your body, it affects the way that you view yourself. It doesn't affect the way you view your clothes. It affects the way you view you. 
We often believe a lie about our bodies, that who we really are is our spirit and our soul, that's what's on the inside, where our physical bodies are just a shell for who we really are. We believe maybe our body's not good, it's not bad, it's just there, maybe it's just like a house. That's why many people think uh, this, this, this thought that, that the Corinthians had, that, that the physical, the material is second rate, it's why many people believe heaven is going to be a place where we're just kind of spirits floating around on clouds or something. Right? That it'll be this immaterial place where we're just kind of floating around and nothing is really solid, nothing is really physical. Check out what Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that's the body we have now, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul says we wait our Savior, Jesus Christ, to return from heaven. And when, he's go- when he comes back, he's going to transform this body to be like his body. Just like we are transformed and renewed spiritually, we'll be transformed and renewed physically as well. That's the physical, material body that Thomas touched, that, Jesus, that, that Paul is comparing our bodies to. It says that our bodies will be like Jesus' body. He's going to complete our salvation. He's not content to do it without renewing us physically, without renewing our bodies. This is why having uh, what we call body image issues is such a painful thing. It's why it's such a harmful thing. Because to have a dislike for your body, to, and to some degree at least, is to have a dislike for yourself. If someone hates their body, it's going to affect their self-esteem. And on some level, it means you're hating yourself. I want to make a side note real quick while I'm on the topic. This is something that men and women struggle with. Uh, oftentimes, I believe this, the, the idea of, of body image issues is something that it's, it's talked about as if it's primarily something that women uh, deal with and wrestle with. It's something that men and women definitely wrestle with. You're living the Christian life and try, if you're living the Christian life and trying to grow in your understanding of God's love for you, but at the same time you hate your body, you're going to feel this, this tension. You're going to have this problem of, of trying to believe that God loves you when you actually don't love yourself. And we tear ourselves down and nitpick things about our bodies that our culture has told us are flaws and or blemishes on our body. But the reality is the glory of the human body is not determined by by the fickle, changing, ridiculous opinions and perceptions of beauty created by people. It's determined by the glory of the creator. It's determined by the artistry of the creator. One of the things that I love to, to just behold and look at uh, is I was able to go on a Caribbean cruise one time, and the water was just amazing to me. It was just beautiful. It was like the bluest blue I've ever seen, which I know doesn't make sense, but it's like the bluest blue I've ever seen, ever seen anything have. I'm not going out there and I'm saying, well, this wave's a little bit too high, or this, I don't, I don't, this, the, the shape of it is not the way that I would have drawn it up. You know, you just sit back and you're just like, God, you're amazing. You made this look amazing. If you love to look at the mountains, you don't go to the mountains and, and just say, well, that, that peak's a little bit high, or this over here is just a little bit shaped in a way that I wouldn't do it, or I don't like the way this rock st- sticks out. You would just be like, this is amazing. This is a beautiful thing that God created for us to see and behold our bodies. Out of all of God's creation, he created the earth, he created the heavens, he hung the stars, and the last part of his creation that he said was very good was what? Adam and Eve. People that he made in his image, that bear his glory in a way that nothing else does, that nothing else does. We, we, we nitpick our bodies the way we don't look at other aspects of God's glorious creation. We, 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 we look for, quote, unquote, flaws. Nobody's looking at a mountain and saying that's a flaw. 
God created this the way that he desired it to be. He created our bodies as well. He said that it was good. And our culture would lead us to desire to look at our bodies and say, too short, too tall, too light, too dark, too big, too small, too curvy, too flat. you got to recognize that the glory of something that God created is not dependent upon the opinions of people who were also created by God. It is dependent upon the God who created it. God has given us, including our bodies, an aspect of his glory that nothing else in creation has. And if you hate your body, then you are despising God's creation. You are denying to yourself the glory that God has placed in and on you as one made in his image. We were talking about this idea uh, in, in teaching team. If, you, if you're not aware, uh, one of the things I do on almost a weekly basis is meet with uh, a few other pastors in our family churches at Midtown, Downtown, and in Lexington, and we talk about what we're planning on teaching. And this, this came up, and one of, the, um, one of our sisters, Lizzie, she was there speaking from uh, just her experience being in fellowship with other women about this topic. She had this to say. She said, for a lot of circles of Christian women, it is seen as acceptable to grow in God's love for you and your soul while simultaneously hating your bodies. A lot of the tension that women Christians are living in is hating themselves while trying to tell themselves that God loves them. One of the ways that Christian women harm themselves and others is by voicing self-destructive lies about their own bodies. Lies like, I'm not attractive, I'm ugly, I'm gross, I'm not enough. It is not possible to hate your body and love who God made you to be. That will not work. She went on to say in her experience in Christian communities that these lies often don't even get confronted. They're brought up. People say it. I'm sorry that you feel that way, but they're never actually confronted as lies that go against what God actually did in creating us as his people. Our views on our bodies must align with God's views of our bodies. If we're going to wholly and completely walk in what he has created us to be and what he calls us to. And the Bible points out that our bodies are a glorious part of who we are. They're not clothing. It's not a tent. It's not something that you wear. It is a part of who we are. And Paul's message to the Corinthians, don't you think for a minute that you can just do whatever you want to with your body, indulge in whatever you want to with your body because it's not that serious and it's not that deep and it's not that important? He said, no, 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 no. It's extremely important what you do with your body. It is extremely important. It's not just physical. Yes, it is that deep. Your body is connected with your soul, with your spirit. The parts of our body that we physically see work together with the parts that we cannot physically see to make up who we are. What we do with our bodies is extremely important to God. Just like God cares about how we're doing spiritually, he cares about us physically as well. And as we'll see in the next verses, these these, these two, the body and the spirit, aren't as disconnected as we often believe they are. Let's check out verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He says, on top of that, your body is actually a part of Christ. We often see ourselves as like our our spirits are a part of Christ. Like we're connected with him, we're united with him, we make up his body, but it's really who we are on the inside. He said, no, 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 your body is a part of Christ too, because your body is an essential part of who you are. Paul is hammering this point home. Your body matters, so what you do with it matters. Continue on. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So uh, one of the things that was very common 
uh, in Corinth is, uh, especially men, would go to the temple and they would have these prostitutes that were just at the temple and maybe it was a part of this worship of like the sex god or something like that or the god of romance or maybe it was just, maybe it wasn't a part of worship at all, but it was a common part of their society. They would have prostitutes that would be there at the temple and it seems like some of the Christians in Corinth were going to the temple to sleep with these prostitutes as well. I want to get to exactly how Paul makes his argument here at the end of verse 16. Or in verse 16, he said, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? I feel like it's a very interesting way that he makes this argument. He doesn't say, don't you know you can get somebody pregnant? Don't you know you can have a sexually transmitted disease? Don't you know this? Don't you know that? He says, no, no, no. You become one body when you do that with this person. You become one with them. He says, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. He's quoting what it said in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, at the wedding consummation of Adam and Eve. He says, therefore, sorry, verse 24 and 25, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Marriage is about the two becoming one, right? Like two, two lives saying we, we want to, from this point forward to the rest of the time we have on this earth, walk through this life together in the union of Marriage. And so when a married couple has sex, it, it is a celebration of that, right? It, 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 is a, it is communicating the love and the unity that is already there. It, it, it is celebrating, it's cultivating, and it's communicating the most personal, deepest connection that two people are to have on the earth, which is in the context of marriage. And sex, then, is, is by far the, the, the physical act that, that, that brings people together more than any other act. So he, he took, he, he's taking the act of sex, which is the most, most physically intimate act that, that two can have, and he says, I'm saving it for the relationship that is the, most, that is the most intimate relationship that two people can have, and that's when sex will work best. I take the physical act that, that brings people together the most, and it's, it's only to be applied in the relationship where two people are most committed to being with each other, without anything in between them, without anything hindering them, fully vulnerable, fully exposed to one another. And sex is the act that celebrates that, that cultivates that, that communicates that back and forth to each other. That in and of itself makes sex a very powerful thing. Don't believe the lie that it's just physical. Don't believe the lie that it's just an appetite. We, and we know, honestly, that physical contact isn't just a physical thing. Right, we all have ways that we might want people to touch us or don't want people to touch us. Let me try to, let me try to paint this picture for you. Um, so uh, when we get out of here today, you're going to see people greeting each other uh, in a few different ways. One way you're going to see, one type of handshake you're going to see is a straight-in type of handshake, right? So you got about 45 degrees right here between your thumb and your index finger. The hand's a little bit below the elbow. You go in straight. You do a firm handshake. That's one way you do it. Ain't nothing wrong with that. I don't really do that, but ain't nothing wrong with that. I kind of come in more, thumbs pointed back, still about 45 degrees. This swooping motion right here where you dap up, try to make some sound, bring it in, maybe a pat on the back if, you, if, if I'm feeling it at the moment. But, but the, the point is... The point is, we have different physical interactions. What do those things do? Why do we do that? Why is it that every culture you go to, there's going to be some type of physical interaction between people, usually with hands, where we're communicating some type of camaraderie or love or unity? Why is that? No matter where you go. Because when our bodies, even something as simple as hands, come together, it communicates something deeper than what is just physical. If you uh, leave here, and you go to watch football, which I highly recommend. 
uh, what you will notice is after a great play, you're going to see two grown men, I'm talking about 200-pound plus, run as fast as they can at each other and jump and just hit bodies with each other, and nobody thinks it's weird. <laughs> and nobody thinks it's weird. Everybody's okay with it. Everybody's fine with it. What's happening? There's a celebration, right? There's a, that, something is being communicated and cultivated and celebrated right there with them just come running, just really just running their bodies into each other. It's a, it's, a, it's a sign of the unity, the love, the camaraderie that we have together. Some will call that the chest bump. Another way that we do that is with hugs. Hugs mean something. Hugs mean something. We had, uh, I think it was Leslie and Tay were over at our place and uh, I don't remember what Kobe was doing. Maybe he was brushing his teeth. It was at night. And then uh, Leslie and Tay left. And Kobe cried. My son Kobe cried because he couldn't get a hug before they left. Cried. Real, real tears. I had to like, get, like, like, communicate with them. I was like, hey, tell them goodnight or something. I don't know. Do, do something. Right? Hugs mean something. It's a closer embrace than a handshake, right? It's communicating more love that is there, right? That, 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 that physical interaction, two people with their bodies coming together in that way, communicate something deeper. It's not just physical. We can, we can go further. Holding hands, cuddling, these things mean something. These things are important. These things communicate and celebrate something. They cultivate something between two people. I cuddle with my boys. I want them to know that I love them, that I care about them, that I'm with them, that I'm near them. I want them to know that they can depend on the love that I have for them. So I make sure we have physical touch in our relationship in an appropriate way. Kissing. Right? These things to varying degrees communicate love, communicate affection, create bonds between people. And we all know that some of those forms of interaction are appropriate for some relationships and some are inappropriate for other relationships. We all know that. We might have different ideas for, for, who, uh, for what relationships these things are appropriate for. God is saying with sex, there's one relationship that this is appropriate for. Again, we all have an idea of certain types of physical touch that are appropriate for certain types of relationships. The one that God weighs in on and gives his, his, his standards and his restrictions on is the most powerful form of physical interaction between two people which is sex. Don't believe it's just physical. We know it's not just physical. We know when two people's bodies come together, it does something. It has, a, it has a purpose. And God, who is our creator, gets to assign what that purpose is and within what boundaries it is supposed to be used. And this is why you have the right to tell people not to touch you in ways you don't want them to touch you. Because deep down, you know that there needs to be restrictions on physical touch. Because deep down, you are very aware that touch is not just two physical things. It's not the same as me touching this thing when I come in contact with another person physically. We all know this. But we suppress it and deny it when it comes to sex because we want to be able to use it however we desire. So we suppress what we already know to be true. Continue on, Paul is saying, we'll read 15 and 16 again. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Don't you know that your body isn't just your body, he's saying? So you have the right because it's your body to, de- to determine how different people touch you. He's saying, but your body doesn't just belong to you, so you're not the only one who gets say on how you use it. Because your body also belongs to Christ, he's saying. We have no problem with someone saying, hey, you can't touch me that way, right? That's, a, that's an appropriate boundary that everybody should be able to have because their body belongs to them. Also, God, because if you're a Christian, the body also belongs to him, also can say how you can use it and who can touch the body in what way, Paul says. 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Would I try to become one like that with someone that I'm not actually one with in this covenant? Paul says never. Of course not, he's saying. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. The Bible is clear that God, creator of everything, designed sex to take place between man and woman in the covenant of marriage. We did a whole series on it called Theology of Sex. You can go to midtown2notch.com and search Theology of Sex, or you can honestly just Google Midtown 2 Notch and Theology of Sex if you want a more fully fleshed out answer for why we say that. But for now, I don't have time to go into that any, any further, that specific point. God has reserved the physical act that communicates, celebrates, and cultivates love and unity and together more than any other act for the relationship that is actually to have more love, unity, and togetherness than any other relationship. So Paul's saying, of course it matters what you do with your body. Of course. How could it not matter? We know it matters, because, and that's why we have restrictions on how people can touch us. Let's go in verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. He's saying it's a sin against your body, that part of who you are, the physical part of who you are. It's a sin against that to, to give your body to sexual sin, he says. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? The Holy Spirit lives in you, he's saying. Your body is, is this temple. It has, it has purpose. There's a sacredness to it. To your physical body, there's a sacredness to it. You don't get to use it to just indulge in whatever you want to. And then Paul drives home his point right here. I'll read the verse, end of verse 19 and verse 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. That's where he gives the command the command that's supposed to stick. Because now, hopefully, you have a greater understanding of your body, the importance of it, what it's really all about, that is actually a part of who you are, that God has assigned a level of glory to your body, that it actually affects you in deep places, the way that you use your body. He says, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. He's saying he has saved you from slavery to sin. He has saved you from sin he has bought you with the price, the price being his own life, his, his shed blood. He has bought you out of slavery to sin, and now you belong to him, which means your body belongs to him. So use it to glorify him because it belongs to him, he's saying. It's his. It's important. It's sacred. It's a part of you and who you are. It belongs to him. And to be a Christian, because I know that's a great sacrifice that, that, that Paul is calling us to make right here. To be a Christian is to see God, is to see his love, his mercy, his righteousness, his goodness. To be a Christian is to look at all that and say, I want this more than I even want my own life. That I want this more than anything. That he is so good, that he is so majestic and beautiful and glorious, that he is so much of everything that I have always needed, that I am saying anything else in this world doesn't compare to him, and I am willing to hold it with an open hand because of my devotion to him. That is what it is to be a Christian. Amen. It is to know that we don't belong to ourselves. It is to so desire him to say, God, whatever it takes for me to have more of you, I'm ready to let it go. 
whatever it takes for me to know you more, to walk more closely with you, to enjoy and savor you more. That's what I'm about. That's who I am now. That's who I have become because you, you have purchased me. And as Paul said a little bit earlier in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality, he says. Flee. It's one of the times in Scripture where Paul doesn't say stand and fight. He says flee. I don't know if you ever, I don't know if you have a familiarity with what the word flee means. It is to run away from something and run to a safer place or, or, or something else that is safe. He's saying flee from it. Don't play with it. Don't try to see how close you can get to it without actually crossing the line. Don't, don't see how close you can get to it without going all the way. Don't, don't flirt with it. Don't play with it. He says flee. Christian, if you are trying to see how close you can get to sin without someone else, sorry, get to sin with someone else without actually going all the way, you're already in sin because you're not fleeing. If you're trying to see how close to sin you can get, you're already in sin. You're already there because you're not fleeing from sexual immorality. Christians who are dating in the room, you need to be fleeing from sexual temptation. You need to be running from it as if it is after you and you are running to someplace safe or something safe. I would say that means you need some clearly set up boundaries with what your interactions will be like to ensure that you are fleeing from sexual immorality. You shouldn't be putting yourself in a situation where you might not be able to say no, where you might not be able to hit the brakes. Now, the Bible isn't extremely specific about what that has to look like for each person or each couple. I'll, I'll share my example, I'm not trying to say that this is what you have to do. For me, I know I knew myself, made a few boundaries with, with uh, who... I just started, when I just started dating Hannah, it was like, okay, I'm not going to go in your room. I can't, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I know me, I'm not going to do it. Um, I remember one time she asked me to move her TV, and I was like petrified. I was like terrified. <laughs> we also had a rule that if we're on the couch, at least two feet got to be on the floor at all times. Two feet on the floor, all times if we're on the couch. Got to have two feet on the floor. Somebody got to be vertical <laughs> up in here. Also, I know me. I told, I told Hannah, and you can ask her. She'll, she'll laugh about it. I told her, uh, before, I told her before, we, before we start a date, you're going to have to resist your urge to kiss me. You're just going to have to. I know. I know how much you want to do that. You're going to have to resist your urge to kiss me on the lips. We could do a kiss on the forehead, kiss on the cheek. All that is great. You're going to have to control yourself, babe. Just what you're going to have to do. For some people, that sounded extreme. For some people, that, that was doing too much. Don't let anybody tell you what fleeing looks like for you. Don't let anybody tell you that. The Bible doesn't come, the Bible does not come crystal clear on what that has to look like for everybody. But you have to be honest with yourself. You have to be honest. Are you fleeing or are you just saying, I can be this close? That's cool if we get close to it, right? Fleeing is an extreme response. If you see somebody just take off running full speed this way, you're going to be like, what are they doing? What is going on? Fleeing is extreme. It's full speed. It's not looking back. It's I am getting to safety. I know many people have had to restrict Internet access greatly because they're tempted to watch pornography. I know people who have disabled their Wi-Fi, disabled data packages on their phone, use some type of software monitoring system. Listen to me. That is godly, biblical maturity. That is maturity. It's not something to be mocked. It's not something to be laughed at. It is mature. It is fighting sin. It is fleeing from sexual immorality. Fleeing will look extreme and foolish to some in the outside world, but we ascribe to the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of this world. This is how we live 
as Christians. Some of us in the room are likely right now, uh, not, literally, not literally right now doing it in this room, but are in relationships where you are flirting, you're sending text messages because you're trying to get close to somebody, you know you want to have sex with them. You know, but right now it seems innocent and you are moving yourself closer and closer and closer to actually having sex with this person. And it looks innocent right now, but you know what you're doing, you know what you're after, and you need to stop. And you need to stop and cut it off and never do it again. You know what you want. You might be acting like to yourself, this is not actually what you want. This is not actually where this road will end. But deep down, you know. You know that it is sexual desire. It is lust that is leading every text message that you send. And you need to stop because you're not fleeing from sexual immorality. You need to stop. Paul said early in the passage, I will not be mastered by anything. Part of the reason we, fr- part of the reason we flee is because we know that when sexual temptation hits, it's intoxicating. It's supposed to be that way. God, God set it up that way so, that, we, so that, that husband and wife will be intoxicated with each other, that they will continue to be drawn to each other and continue to be pulled towards each other in love and unity. That's how God created it. That's the way that it's supposed to be. Sexual lust can take over. If you're not fleeing, you're probably losing control. Sexual immorality is what the Corinthian church was actually known for. Oh, no, I shouldn't say the Corinthian church. Corinthians in general were actually known for. Right? They had the big temple that's right there in the middle of the city where anybody can come and have sex at any point. The term Corinthian was used to describe someone who's very sexually used. This was a part of their identity. This is a part of who they were, who, who they were how they saw themselves. But Paul gives the Corinthian church hope. And if that's you, I don't want to talk to the people who you've been struggling with some type of sexual sin for a decade or so now, where this has been a problem and an issue for you to the point where you don't, you, you begin to see yourself through that lens that this is who I am. This is who I was. This is who I'm always going to be. Paul is offering freedom in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11. As he's giving them hope in their fight. I'll read 9 and 10 first. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this sounds like a very scary verse. We know from other scriptures that Paul's not saying that you're not forgiven if you're a Christian. Paul is saying that idolaters and adulterers, those who are defined by that, will inherit the kingdom of God. It's important to read the context of this scripture. Keep going in verse 11. That first phrase, I hope you find freedom in that. And such were some of you, Paul says. He's saying the people who still sin sexually. He's not talking to a perfect church. He's talking to the Corinthians, the same church that he's already called carnal. He said that they are like infants in Christ. And he's saying to them, those who have messed up over and over and over again, and such were some of you. That that's who you were. That's not who you are now. And then he goes on to tell them who they are now. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. He's writing them things because they they might identify themselves as someone who is sexually immoral, as as an adulterer. But he's saying, no, no, in the eyes of God, you're identified as washed. You're identified as clean. You're identified as sanctified. You're identified as a son and as a daughter of God that you've been given a new identity now. That that's not who you are anymore. That it no longer defines you. And if you're someone who has felt mastered by sexual temptation and lust and sexual immorality, and you felt like that defines you, the thing that you need to understand is you have a new master now. 
Paul says, but I will not be mastered by anything. He's talking to a group of people who have been mastered and thus found their identity and who they are in this. But Paul is saying, hey, you got a new master now. You got a new identity. You're not the same as you were. You, you've been bought from slavery to sin, and Christ paid the price for your life, including your body. And now you have a new master and a new identity, and that is no longer who you are. Some of us, I think we've surrendered to temptation and these desires so long that we can't think of ourselves without seeing whatever our specific temptation is. That we, we can't view ourselves that way. God is saying through Paul, through the Apostle Paul in this letter, you're washed, which means you've been clean. There's no stain on you. There's no, you're not stained by any sin of your past. You're not stained by any temptation that you might have. You're sanctified, which means you're now set apart for the purposes of God. You and your body are now set apart for his purpose, and you're justified. You're declared righteous before a holy God. He's saying God doesn't see you that way anymore. He's saying that's not who you are. So much of the fight against temptation as a Christian is realizing. It's just realizing that this isn't who I am anymore. I feel this temptation, but that's not me. That's the old me. That's That's who I used to be. That's the old me. And understand that I've been made new in Christ. Romans, I believe it is chapter 6, talks about we are now raised with Christ into newness of life. That he's given us a newness that we are not defined by what we have done. We're not defined by how we are tempted. We are defined by what our God says about us. And he says that we've been saved. We have a new master and we are no longer enslaved to sin. Here's what I'm going to do for us, church. Uh, as we normally do, we're going to partake in communion uh, in just a little bit. Uh, we're going to approach the table where we see the broken uh, bread that represents the broken body of Jesus. We're going to see, uh, and we're going to dip that into the cup, into the juice that we have there that represents the, the shed blood of Jesus. This is a picture of what of the price that Jesus actually paid for our salvation so that we can be made new. And we're going to approach the table. We're going to celebrate that together that we've been made new no matter what we have done, that we, we continually find renewal in him, and that he paid the price so that we can have a new master now. And we're going to do something else that's a little bit different from what we've done before. I think it's very easy for us to hear a sermon like this, maybe be motivated to repent, to change, to do differently, to see ourselves differently, to understand our new identity. And then at times we leave and we take no real actionable steps to pursue that freedom that Christ offers us. I want to give you the opportunity to take one actionable step today. I'm going to pray. After I pray, I'm going to ask Amy uh, to come up uh, right here and she'll just stand right here. And if you desire prayer, specifically with anything dealing with sexual immorality, sexual temptation, anything about the way that you view yourself and not recognizing and understanding your new identity in Christ, I'll be right here. If you're a brother, you can come to me. And this will be during the same time as communion. And I would love to just put a hand on your shoulder and pray for you. And Amy will just be right here. So for the sisters in the room, you can come and you can talk to her and she will love to pray for you. We'll do this at the same time that we're doing uh, communion. If you are a believer uh, in the room and you're a follower of Jesus, uh, we would love for you to approach the communion table uh, with us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then we ask that you can uh, stay in your seat, or we also love for you to come to the front. And I would love, to, and myself and Amy would love to pray for you. So let me pray uh, for us, then I'll open up our time of prayer and our time of communion together. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Father, there is a lot of history of sexual sin in this room, of not understanding the new identity that you 
have given us in this room. There's a lot of hurt, Father. There are a lot of wounds. There are a lot of scars, Father. There's a lot of shame, Father. There's a lot of feelings of weakness and hopelessness currently in the room. And we sing that you are a good, good Father. You are, you are with us at all times, Father. So I pray for freedom for all of us. Freedom from the lies that the enemy and that the world would tell us about our bodies and about sexuality. Freedom from lies that the enemy would tell us when he tries to give us self-condemning thoughts, when we know that we're a child of God and that we are justified and sanctified and made clean in you. Father, these things, they, they, they burden us, Father. They, they weigh us down. They do harm to our souls and our spirits. Father, would you grant us freedom? Would you grant us a joy and a freedom and a peace in you that we've never known before? Would you grant us a strength, Father, to actually free sexual immorality and temptation in ways that we've never fleed it before? Father, would you help us to understand that we have been made new, that we, are, we don't just act different, but we are different. We've been made different because we were bought with your life. And we have newness of life in you because you died for us and you were raised from the grave. Father, there's anyone in here who uh, you are calling them, you desire them to come and be prayed for. I pray that you would uh, get past any hurdles that might prevent them from coming forward to be prayed for. Would you help us all to just relentlessly seek the freedom that we have in you, knowing that you are our master now? Would you help us to partake in communion in remembrance of you? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.